Hello, and welcome back to The Real View from TPI. It's Ashley Benjamin, and I'm going to be this week's host. We have our usual band of misfits joining us this week, Jane Creel, Lindsay Poss, and Sarah O. Welcome. Yay, thanks. During- Hello. <laughs> so during this week's episode, we're going to be touching on the rising topic of contact tracing. Now, contact tracing isn't new, but in the current climate, we have a lot of new tools at our fingertips. And I also want to touch on the subject. Thankfully, a lot of us at TPI have been very privileged in the sense that we're able to work fully remotely. We're all healthy, happy, hopefully, and have the means to protect ourselves and families. Have any of you gals or your family members been affected by COVID? Thankfully, no. Not yet. No, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, it feels sort of like the well, Twilight Zone. <laughs> like nobody has, we've been okay. Disease-wise, job-wise, it's been a little bit different across the family. But disease-wise, we've all been good, which is very, we're very fortunate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Delighted to be back with the ladies for another episode of The Real View. You know, I mean, we all have been affected by COVID-19, whether we it's the social distancing or making really hard decisions on your position on what you're going to do and how much risk you're willing to take. Quite frankly, you know, I mean, other than going to the stores, grocery and pharmacy and that kind of thing, I have gotten a couple to-go orders, but we are not back enjoying in dining restaurants or, you know, I certainly wouldn't go to a bar or any kind of event or church or anything like that. Now, my husband's very high risk, so we just take every precaution we can. Absolutely. So it's been said recently that the United States may need upwards of 100,000 people trained in the practices of contact tracing. So for those who aren't aware of contact tracing, it's tracking and confining people who have been in contact with someone who tests positive for a virus. And right now that would be the coronavirus. Apps have been adopted in countries all around the world to track the spread of the virus, but they're not as widely used here in the States just yet. Now, despite the concerns for privacy, a lot of the American tech companies are working to get these smartphone apps up and running. Now, Jane, you mentioned, you know, not on the podcast, but in our staff meeting that you're taking a course through Hopkins. Do you want to share your experience with that course? Absolutely. So as Ashley mentioned, I am currently taking a COVID-19 contact tracing course, which is being offered by Johns Hopkins University through Coursera. This course is offered at no charge and covers the basics of COVID-19 and why contact tracing is an effective public health intervention. They also address the ethical considerations and strategies associated with identifying those infected and those who have been in contact with active cases to help stop further transmission of the infection. While I've not completed the entire course, I do have a few things I'd like to touch on. First, there are two distinct groups of people that the public health officials are following during this pandemic. The first are cases. These are people who are experiencing active symptoms of COVID-19. The second are contacts. Contacts are people who have been exposed to those active cases who may be at risk for developing and spreading the virus. Active cases are encouraged to isolate. That's a word we don't hear too often. They need to isolate until they are no longer infectious, are encouraged to isolate. Contacts exposed to someone with the coronavirus are asked to 
quarantine for 14 days. But if you live with an active case, you won't even start your quarantine period until the active case is no longer contagious. So when you hear about these 14 days, that's just best case scenario. My husband could get it, say, on July 1st and say, I moved back in this house on the 10th. Well, if he was still experiencing symptoms, I'm not, you know, symptoms like a fever, which is not managed or controlled with any kind of Tylenol or any kind of remedy, intervention. It's possible that I could be having to quarantine for almost a month, (laughs) but it's not really considered quarantine. It is considered quarantine, but then if I get it, I have to (laughs) self-isolate. So it's crazy, but it is, it's, I do enjoy the course. It's pretty thorough. I encourage anybody who wants to really get some information about the coronavirus and how this might affect you and the people you know and love. It definitely gets to the nuts and bolts of everything. I have a basic question. What does the difference between symptomatic and like contagious? I don't even know if COVID patients can they be symptomatic but not contagious? That's a good question. <laughs> I just don't know. Now, you are considered contagious or your infectious period begins two days prior to an active symptom, whether that be fever, cough. So two days prior to me coming down with a fever and cough, anybody that I have been in contact with is considered a contact and has been exposed. That's crazy. Oh, that makes it so much harder. (laughs) Yeah. And you are still considered contagious and infectious for three days post-symptom. So if you had a fever for 10 days, you're infectious two days prior and three days after your fever breaks and your symptoms are improving. So that would be like over two weeks in the scenario you just listed. Well, and it could possibly be even longer. Right, yeah. I was going to say, in the case of my neighbor who has had a fever, a COVID-related fever, for over 100 days. I've seen so many reports of that now. People will say, you know, oh, we're told that if you're young and healthy, it's a two-week disease, you get all your symptoms, and it's over with. But there's all these people coming forward who are saying, oh, no, you know, I had fever, aches, pains. There's all these weird symptoms. There's this thing called COVID toes, where the skin on your toes starts to bubble and come off and gastrointestinal problems. And these people were saying, you know, 30, 60, 90 days out, they were still having these symptoms. And it wasn't just limited to the respiratory system. It was like endocrine problems. And I mean, it's just, it's wild. So that whole narrative that like, oh, you're young and you know, you get it and then you're okay. Like even running a low grade fever for months is exhausting. I don't like that. I don't want to deal with that. (laughs) No, no. And I did also find out that you are most contagious on the first day that you're symptomatic. Wow, that is so crazy. That is, that's the day you go to the doctor, right? (laughs) You you think? Usually the first day, you know, you kind of have a cough and a fever of an illness. I feel like I don't go to the doctor the first day. I go to it like the fifth. And at that point, I've already been to the grocery store or whatever. Right. Yes, yes. Well, 
But you're not even <laughs> supposed to go to the doctor without calling them first. Right. With COVID symptoms. Oi, what a... Well, <sighs> when I had strep throat a few months ago, I, I didn't call. I just went because I thought I had COVID. But thankfully, I just had a really bad case of strep throat. Which also is not fun, for the record. <laughs> no, I've never had strep throat as an adult, and I don't wish that on my worst enemy. Mm. Okay, so yeah. many countries have adopted the app for contact tracing. For instance, in northern Italy last month, three people had gone into the doctor and tested positive for COVID-19, and they gave the doctors permission to punch into a national server that was generated by the new contact tracing app on their phones. And a few moments later, the phones of all the people who had also voluntarily downloaded the app and had come into contact with these positive cases, their phones buzzed with an alert. Lindsay, I know that you were just reading up on some stats in a paper that we're actually hosting an event on. You want to share a little bit of that? Yeah, absolutely. So next Thursday, let me check the exact date because I already forget. (laughs) Yeah, days are so relative at this moment (laughs) that it's impossible to remember. So yes, next Thursday, July 9th from noon to one, we are hosting a co-author of a recently released paper called The Cost of Privacy Welfare Effects of the Disclosure of COVID-19 Cases. So basically what Ashley was just talking about Those patients that were able to opt in and share their data did, and then people who came in contact were alerted. Different countries have obviously adopted different approaches. This particular paper looks at Seoul, South Korea. They had a full disclosure policy for COVID-19 tests, meaning that the location data of people who tested positive was shared, and they were thus able to contact trace and figure out who had come into contact with them and then properly isolate and kind of manage cases that way. And the authors of this paper find that the public disclosure lowered the number of cases by 400,000 and the number of deaths by 13,000, and that the economic cost was 50% lower compared to no public disclosure of information. So it's really obviously extremely, oh yeah, it's such stark, stark results there. And you can feel free to tune in and join us for kind of a further discussion on those results and the methodology and even on privacy and all of that. This obviously was a particular case study in one country, but those types of results are what I think America has been craving, but we also have not put in a great program for contact tracing. And there are some good reasons for that. And it mostly comes down to privacy. Obviously, when you're sharing location data of patients who've tested positive for a disease, there's a pretty big privacy violation there. And there's an understandable hesitation of not wanting to share health and location data like that for various reasons, including like creating a surveillance state or possibly being targeted for different things or just, I mean, there's all kinds of privacy concerns. So I would love to hear from you guys what you think about public disclosure, if you're for it or against it, and like kind of what you see as potential privacy concerns, or if the privacy concerns don't outweigh at all the results that we've seen from public disclosure. Well, I'm interested to hear more about the Apple Google project. So they have a contact tracing app that they're working on together that protects privacy in a technological way and preserves anonymity, but also contact traces COVID people. I haven't heard much more about it, but I guess they're trying to roll it out across the states. The U.S. is such a large country. Like Seoul is one city, but the U.S. is so large. It's more challenging. 
Yes, it is. I know. And I know that Google and Apple have released their betas of the technology to government. So hopefully we have some, some good apps out here soon. I know that I actually downloaded an app that Lindsay recommended, Novid, just in case, because I, I don't go anywhere, but, you know, just in case I do go to the supermarket or if I go to the drive through at Chick-fil-A, I am having interaction with these people. So just in case, but... You know, my husband, he's worried about the use of the apps. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of funny because he, he's an electrician in the fire safety field and he goes into a lot of buildings right now. But in some of these buildings that he enters, he has to sign in with his phone number and email address and then out again when he's all done. But he, <laughs> he's so worried who has access to this information and what measures are they taking to safeguard it? He's very big brother. Ah. Me, on the other hand, I think these benefits outweigh the risk of someone having my location data, you know, but he says to me, could these tools become instruments of surveillance? And I'm like, well, for me, it, it, it really doesn't matter because I'm just an average Joe or Jane, average Jane. And I, <laughs> I don't really mind someone having this information if it's going to help save other people. Yeah, I tend to feel yeah. this. You do. Yeah, I'm on board with you, Ashley and Jane. But I do say that from a view of not having a full picture of what the privacy and potential national security concerns and all that are. Shout out to Novid, which is from my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, that is intentionally does not use personal information and keeps users anonymous, which is also the goal of Google's and Apple's contact tracing app, which is awesome. But then there's a question too of like, if anonymity actually works, because you probably should know who you came into contact with. I mean, some of those apps, it's if you're within six feet of someone random at the grocery store, and then they tell you, oh, you came close to someone. Well, what if I think it's my sister who I have to go and help with childcare sometimes with, who's the only other person I see? Like, it's, I love the idea of anonymity, but it's also so hard to imagine that working in practice, but I also don't want to give up my identity. So it's like a permanent loop <laughs> of what to do. Well, I will say that hearkening a little bit on your six feet during this course, I actually did learn that your risk increases when you are within less than six feet for 15 minutes or more. So if it's just a couple minutes in, in the grocery store, that's one thing. But if you're doing whatever and y'all are there standing at a bar even though you have a mask on, if you're going to stand at a bar and be less than six feet from somebody, your risks increase. And I can say that there has been an amazing escalation in the technology to assist in the contact tracing. But does this violate my privacy? Probably. But my health and that of my family are certainly more important than the risks to my privacy. My health far outweighs my personal considerations, period. But I will say these tools need to be retired when the public risk has been addressed and hopefully we'll never have to use them again. Yeah, I was just reading, I was trying to find the story. I was reading about the group of friends in Florida that went out to a bar and then 16 of them tested positive and she had heard from like 20 more people who were also at the bar that night that they tested positive. It's like this huge outbreak at the freaking bar. <laughs> like, Well, and then you have these idiots who, you know, are in the grocery store and they get shamed by someone for not wearing a mask, which... I can't believe that masks aren't required everywhere, but that's just me. 
But then you have these idiots who walk up, you know, oh, there were people talking about her or them and complaining to the management or talking amongst themselves. And these stupid people walk over and spit on them and cough on them. And I'm like, you know, what the hell's wrong with these people? (laughs) And therein lies the issue and the problem that I see with the contact tracing, because, you know, everything is encouraged. Nobody can make you isolate. No one can make you quarantine. And that is a big ethical issue. And I will explore that on my next module on ethics. Stay tuned. How convenient. <laughs> you are <an> expert, Jane. <laughs> when do you start making phone calls to people to tell them that they've been in contact with someone? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Quite frankly, I, I mean, other than Rob McDowell, I don't know anybody that has it. <laughs> because I been staying at home. When we are lucky to be in a state where cases or in an area where cases didn't quite spike super high and are have been going down. I was just checking Maryland's case numbers today and they've been going down pretty consistently as has the district. So Larry Hogan has done a very, very, very good job of leading us through this mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really has. So maybe if we were in Texas or Arizona or New York City, we would know. I do know a couple of friends in New York City who have, one friend is actually in architecture school and one of her professors who was already battling cancer passed away from COVID. And she said it was actually very difficult in the school. He was a really beloved professor, but they they were certainly hit a lot harder than the, the district in its metropolitan area. It's <laughs> so awful. But this is devastating. And that, one of the things that I keep talking to young kids, you know, the neighbor kids riding down the block on their bike or, you know, like Effie, my granddaughter. This is awful. The situation that we're in is crazy. But here I am in my 50s. I've never been through this before. Your generation had never been through this before. And, you know, I mean, we're all learning through this together. And you just have to have an open mind and accept that your lives have changed. And you have to keep yourself and other people safe. Absolutely. But I also, I I worry, you know, with the younger generation that they're losing a lot of these social skills from being isolated from other people. Oh, are you speaking from certain personal experience, Ashley? Oh, I am. Yes. (laughs) My now six-year-old daughter, she hasn't, with the exception of my niece coming over just recently, she hasn't had any in-person contact with her friends since March 13th. And I just, I worry for them. (laughs) So hopefully we get some news here soon about what next fall is going to look like. I'm hoping that the numbers start to decline, but it's looking pretty bleak when you look at Florida and Alabama and Texas right now, (laughs) which my mother-in-law, she came and she lives in New Mexico, but she flew from El Paso, Texas here to my house in Maryland. And I actually got tested for COVID-19 before she arrived. And I got the results the same day that she got here, but I'm negative. I do not have it. I have not had it, but. Yeah, Jane, you got tested too. Where did you guys do that? I got tested through LabCorp. They have a third party screening process. And I guess it's some backroom doctor that just basically signs off on this tiny little survey you have to take. You can't have active symptoms, but I went and got my antibody test at LabCorp. The only reason I got it, well, I got it 
the same day I got other tests done that my doctor wanted me to do. So I didn't just go out and get the test itself or by itself. And the results were back in probably 16 hours and I was negative. I went to the CVS Minute Clinic. Yeah. No, I went to the CVS Minute Clinic and it was free. They do it through Quest. So you go through, if you have a a CVS with a drive-through, you just make an appointment online. You drive up to the drive-thru. They give you the instructions. You know, you swab your brain with this nasal swab. <laughs> it has to go in a full inch. <laughs> they, they say it has to go to the little marking that's denoted on the swab. So it was painful, but apparently they do like a throat one now. So if I ever have to test again, I'm going to opt for the throat swab. <laughs> but yes, it was free, you know, through insurance. And you didn't have to give a reason. You just check off all the boxes. And I wanted to get it done just to be sure that I didn't have it with my older mother-in-law who is, you know, in her mid to late sixties, but she, you know, was flying from Texas and their numbers are super sky high. And she passed over here and stayed for a few days and met up with the sister. And then they flew to Alabama, another place that has really high numbers. I said, this woman, and then she probably after this trip is going to have to go to her second home in Florida. I was like, these are all places I don't want to go. Have you guys seen, well, there was a resource that was just released this morning from Harvard, I believe. It's, I think it's like a joint initiative, but it's called globalepidemics.org. And it has like all of these key maps and you can actually check within your own county how at risk you are, which is really cool. I went on this morning and it was already overwhelmed. So they were saying like, yeah, please come back. (laughs) We're going to raise our capacity. But it goes county by county within the state, which is really cool. So it's back up right now and I will do live checks of where we live if you all are interested in that. Absolutely. I think you and I are technically in the same county, so... Yeah, we are. Let's see. Our risk level, this says daily new cases per 100K people. And the risk level goes from red to green. And there's three levels, red, orange, yellow, green. And Prince George's County is currently at a yellow risk with nine average case, about nine, 8.5 average cases per seven days per 100,000 people. So that's pretty low. So we're not in green yet, but we're doing pretty well. I'm in Charles County. Yours is at five cases per week per 100,000 people, also in yellow. So also good. It looks like the green is, the green happens when there's less than one case per week per 100,000, per 100,000 people though. So if you're in a metro area of 3 million, that number's not just one person in that entire area. So Sarah, do you want me to check where you are? Yeah, I've been splitting time, Montgomery County and then Arlington. So Montgomery County is at seven cases per week per 100,000 and Arlington also in yellow. Arlington is, let's see, it looks like, oh my gosh, Virginia has a lot more counties than Maryland. (laughs) Oh, Arlington is doing great. You're at 2.8 cases per week per 100,000. Good. That's awesome. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in checking your own risk factors, it's globalpandemics.org and it actually does work and there's all kinds of information, but the coolest map thing is the map that shows you how at risk you are. So we're all in the yellow, which is good. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's it for today. I want to thank everyone for joining me. And like and subscribe. See you next time. A <laughs> little bit heavier discussion this time, but I think it was good. Stay alive. Stay inside. Yeah. Stay inside. <laughs> yeah. Wear your freaking masks. <laughs> yes, everybody. Wear a mask. Come on. It's not that hard. 
Have it's you, not, have a, you not seen a political statement? No, it's not. Have you not seen and all the people who are making it into a political statement? I can't breathe with this thing on. Then no go outside. And that, and also well, there have been many people who have done the test. If you can't breathe with the mask, you certainly aren't going to be able to breathe if you get this virus. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. There so. you go, Jane. <laughs> Tune in next Thursday for our event on public disclosure and location and information sharing. And yeah, please wear a mask. It's not political. It's just nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, Be safe and well, everyone. And we'll see you next time.